thank them. That was great. Awesome. Uh, my name is Derek. I didn't introduce myself at the beginning, but welcome. Um, oh, quick update for you. I told you last week, if you were here, that we got my son a guitar for Christmas and some lessons. Not just going to let it sit there. Um, but if you were here, you might remember me saying that he wanted to name the guitar. That was like his first project was to name the guitar, which I thought was perfect. He has a name. We've named it. We waited eight days, just like a Jewish. Uh, <laughs> but the name of the guitar is the Magic School Bus. Isn't that the coolest name for, uh, yeah. You don't like it? What? Str yeah, he... That was like in the mix. Strummer was an idea. We're like, no. So, it's my guitar strummer. All right. We got all sorts of stuff to do today. So, Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, you won't have to move from there uh, at all. Anything else I'm going to put on the screen for you. But I want you to sit uh, in these two verses. And I just want to tell you, and I'll say this a couple times, everything I'm going to say today is an introduction for the whole year. And so what happens today over the next few minutes is really about what's to come. And uh, I want you to just really let these two verses sit in your head today. Really just verse 2 is the main thing, but we'll hit them both because there's some important stuff in both. Uh, now, this is the part of Exodus that everybody knows. If you're sketchy on the whole story, this is the part we all know. This is the chapter that has the Ten Commandments. Are we familiar with that? How many of you broken? If you'll just turn to your neighbor uh, over the next couple seconds and just list the ones that you've broken, we'll continue on, okay? <laughs> that could be dangerous in this room, by the way. Uh, really, people are moving. So, uh, But anyway, this is the list that has been at the center of all sorts of debate, confusion, mystery, division, and so on. Now, in the States, in our own country, the main issue is whether or not they should be posted, when and where if they should be posted, at all. When I was in high school, I worked at Chick-fil-A. Anybody work at Chick-fil-A in high school? Anybody in here? Nice. Which one? Peachtree City. Good job. Anybody else? I'm just like reliving my past up here. Nobody? Where? Logan. Where's Loganville? <laughs> all these out-of-towners, they don't have any idea. Uh, but anyway, I worked at Chick-fil-A, and on the register, I don't know if yours was like this, but on the register at Chick-fil-A, and you can and I have a challenge for you at the end of this story, so just hang in there. But uh, they have a little things-remembered plastic engraved thing taped to the register. Did you have this? No? It's not a real Chick-fil-A. <laughs> it says, the one down here at, uh, in the bottom of the Terminus building, it has it. I've checked every register, which is kind of odd, by the way. But it says, the Eighth Commandment says, do not steal, right? So you've got kind of like company policy there on the... <laughs> Thing and they slip in the scripture. It's really interesting. So if you would this week, go to Chick-fil-A, take a camera, and when they're not looking, take a picture of the register and send them in. I want as many pictures of do not steal on the back of the Chick-fil-A register as I can get. Seriously, do that. All right. But critics of the Ten Commandments say that it isn't necessary to post them because only two uh, are legal issues anyway, which is true. Do not steal, do not murder. The rest, they just sort of go in different directions. And so they're right that only two of the list matter in our legal system. The rest are just in different locations, and they go in different directions. And so perhaps there's something else going on with the list. Perhaps it's not about posting it, 
but it's about living it out in some way. Perhaps when God spoke these words to the people of Israel, which you'll hear about in just a moment, that these words came from God to the people of Israel, he had something else in mind. Now, when I was a kid, and maybe you did this, maybe you were able to do this, but it was about memorizing the ten. Can any, does anybody, did anybody do that as a kid? You just memorized them, and then you just made sure that you obeyed them. You made sure that you didn't fall off the mark. And some of the ten seemed obvious, like don't murder, don't steal. That seemed pretty obvious. Some were a pain in the neck, like honor your father and mother. That was just a pain in the neck. Like That's when you assume that your parents wrote the list. Like, okay, everything sounded good up until that, and then we've got this like, oh, and do what we say as parents. And some were just confusing, like the last one, like do not covet. Like what does that mean anyway as a kid? But there is something in the mystery of the list, and there's something worth taking in. And after a long battle last year, we just finally, and I did this sort of as a water cooler experiment just with some of you, and I would just throw it out there, and uh, it took a while, but then we finally said, okay, we'll do it. For the next 52 Sundays in this year, we've taken all 10, and we've broken them down into 10 smaller series. And so the whole year, if you stay with us, we'll just be in this one chapter of the Bible, and we're just going to move through these things that God had set down for us, for them, for us, for all, of, for all of eternity, and how it looks and how it feels to live these out. I know you're already bored, but just hang in there. It's a pretty exciting, it's very exciting. I mean, how many weeks can you get out of Don't Murder? Just come and see. So. <laughs> the side story is, I've always wanted to do a year, and this was a long time ago, I always wanted to do a year, and this is not because of this dream I had, but I've always wanted to do a year where the titles of all the sermon series were just numbers. Like, I just, for some reason, that just struck me as interesting, like, welcome to 73, you know, whatever. So what we've done this year is, because there are 10 things, every series is just titled the number. So starting next Sunday, we will enter the first series, which is called One. So at the end of the year, when you're critiquing, one was good, three was bad, four redeemed him, five was pretty good. But we just have numbered them. They have subtitles, but the main thing is just the number. Um, the cool sort of serendipitous event of the whole process was, oh, it's the year 2010, and there are 10 of these things in Exodus 20, so 2010. There you go. That's not why we did it. Don't, <laughs> and don't clap. I'm not a mathematician. But, um, so that's our journey. So buckle in. We've ordered catering. It's going to be a while. But we're just going to move through this thing together. Look at verse 1. Are you there? Exodus 20? Answer back. Good. Here we go. It says, and God spoke all these words. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now you may have memorized some of the commandments, but this is the part you should really lock in. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now three things from the start about this. Nowhere in chapter 20, which is where the ten commandments are listed, and nowhere in the Deuteronomy passage where they're listed again, and nowhere in the Bible are these referred to as the Ten Commandments. Nowhere. We've given them that name, and it's okay. We can call them that. But the actual title of this is in the first verse, and God spoke all these, and the word is debarim. Say debarim with me. Debarim. It means words. So these are words of God. They're not nitpicky, exhaustive commands like some of the real detailed stuff you find in the Old Testament, but they're broad-stroke words 
to live by. And Moses always refers to these as the words. And Deuteronomy they refer to as the words. And the New Testament, when it's reiterated, it's the words of God. And so the Jews would divide the law into three sections. There would be the two greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor. Then there would be the ten words. And then there would be the 601 other commandments, all totaling 613, but they would divide it to 10, and 10 is really a summary of everything, and then the 601. So over the course of the year, I'll start referring to them as the words. I would like for you to transition into that too. It puts a different angle on how we viewed these in the past. Number two, and this may not seem important, but it is. It's the halfway point in the Exodus story, and many of the books of the Bible do this. The first half is theology or story or narrative or history. And there's a point where the writer will stop and say, okay, now it's application. So it moves from story to application or from history to application or theology to application. Almost every book of the Bible does this, especially in the Old Testament. And they're almost divided in half. And this is the in half point of Exodus. Part of that was the size of a scroll. Part of that was just the way they put it together. But in this case, it's right down the middle. And so everything that happened in chapters 1 through 19 is dealt with in terms of how to live that out in chapters 20 all the way to the end in chapter 40. But most importantly, verse 1, it was believed that God actually spoke these words. I always thought as a kid that he whispered them to Moses. He chiseled them on some stone, and he came down the hill and said, here's some stuff God wants us to do. But the scripture reads differently. God actually spoke these words. And God had not been speaking to groups of people in a long time. I mean, he spoke to Abraham, Noah, Moses, and so on, but never to a group of people. So you have to think that from chapters 1 through 19, which is the story that we'll look at in a second, God's not speaking to his people. He's speaking to Moses, and Moses is on his behalf speaking to the people. But God speaks these words to the people of Israel. In chapter 19, it says this. This is God speaking to Moses. I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. So God is not only lifting up like the credibility of Moses as their leader, but he's also saying, look, they're going to hear, they're going to hear this. They're going to hear me say these words. I think what's funny, and maybe you won't find it funny, but in chapter 20, after the 10 words are spoken, the people say this. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, look, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but tell God never to do that again, right? I translated it for you at the bottom. You know, just we don't need to hear that. That was frightening. Thank you. I'm here all year, so... Um, Verse 2. Are we doing okay so far? Okay. Verse 2. These are the words that God spoke right here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. These are the first words that the people hear from God. And what it is, is a one statement, one sentence, one statement declaration of their own history. They don't have to, they don't have to like be retold what has happened to them. If you're not dialed into the Exodus story, let me just give you a quick brief summary, and I'll look at my notes so I don't veer, but the slavery that God was talking about was real to these people. Generations and generations of Israelites had grown up and died as slaves in Egypt. They were working for the local empire of the day. The Bible talks about how they just made bricks, 
and they carried them back and forth day and night to build more buildings for the empire. Now, there are 27 million slaves in the world today. So this hasn't gone away. And what's interesting is when organizations do raids on communities, many of the communities where there are slaves, the slaves are making bricks and carrying them back and forth. It's very interesting. It really hasn't changed much. Slaves have always been used to build up who's ever enslaving them. And there's no need to go into any of the dimensions about how slavery works, but I think we're all connected to the injustice and the humanitarian issues that it involves. But for the Israelites, oppression and injustice define their history, and that's a big phrase. That's what their history was defined by. It crowded their minds, their thinking, their way of life. There was certainly a post-traumatic stress system going on within the people. They didn't know how to live free as free people. But Moses, the sort of the hero of the story, he frees them, or he at least leads them into freedom. And what you may or may not know about Moses is that he was born an Israelite, but he was adopted into, as a baby, into the home of Pharaoh, the sitting leader of Egypt. So he was raised on the other side of the fence, or inside the fence, however you want to look at it. And he was raised watching his own people suffer. He watched slavery happen. There's this one occasion where Moses witnessed um, an Egyptian beating an Israelite. So he snaps and he just kills the Egyptian. Thinking that would make him a hero, his people actually hated him for it. And so he ran. He was in exile. He just fleed the whole scene. He just fled the scene. And while he was in exile, he was just tending sheep, watching his father-in-law's sheep. I mean, it just sounds like you came on hard times and your father-in-law gives you a job. And that's what he's doing. And while he's in the wilderness, and he's in the wilderness for a while, but while he's there, there's this moment where, you may know the story, it's the burning bush story, which I always somehow like connect with the singing bush in Three Amigos. I don't know why I do that. Do <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Stick to my notes. All right. But this is when he was in the wilderness and the bush burns, but it doesn't, it's not consumed. It's this miracle. And then the voice of God begins to speak to Moses. And this is one of the first things he says. Next slide. God says to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. The two big words in there are that God sees and he hears. Both of those, by the way, are names of God in the Bible. A God who sees, a God who hears. And so God tells Moses, look, I've seen it, I'm with it, I'm concerned about it, let's do something about it. So God calls Moses, if you're not familiar with the story, to run point on one of the greatest acts of emancipation in history, and that's to lead an entire nation of people from slavery to freedom. And like you and I would do, he said, I don't think so. That sounds pretty dangerous, that sounds pretty sketchy, but thanks for asking and so God and Moses, they go back and forth several times, and Moses would come up with some excuse as to why he couldn't do it, and God would fire back with the reason that he should do it. Moses even tried to get out of it saying, look, I don't, I don't speak well in public. I'm not a great public speaker. I'll never be able to plead the case in front of Pharaoh. But eventually God gets through to Moses, and Moses is on board. He does ask a legitimate question. Okay, then, 
Who am I supposed to say it is that sent me? And then God says this to them. You are to say to the Israelites, I am. And I've bold printed that word. The word is hayah. It's a verb. It's about something being with the situation. It's connected. It's moving. It's not left behind or ahead. It's with the situation. Moses was being reassured that God was going to be with him during this and through this. Now, freeing people from slavery, by the way, is not clean. It's never been clean. It's horrible. It doesn't always happen diplomatically. And this story is no different. There are moments that cause great doubt for these people. There's great turmoil. There's death. There's dark situations. There's giving up. But in the end, all sorts of struggle, through all sorts of struggle, the people were freed from their oppression. They were turned into or turned over to freedom. And Moses was the one who led them out of that slavery and into freedom. Now, all of Exodus 1 through 19 is that story. It's a story of, from slavery to freedom. And our verse today, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery, is simply a summary of that whole story. You and I have to look back and read it to get it, but these people, when they hear God speak these words, it's an immediate connection. They know exactly what they're talk, he's talking about. And so God begins saying to these people, I know that you followed Moses out, but it was me that was working through him that led you into freedom. So don't confuse worshiping him over me. Don't confuse the leader with the one who led the leader. So he says, I know that Moses, free, I know you followed him into freedom, but it was me, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now all of that, is so encouraging because we have this description of who God is. He leads people from slavery to freedom. And it's this wonderful, like, and maybe you've never heard this verse. Maybe when you think of the 10, you just go straight to the list and start clicking off the ones you do and don't do. But this one, almost a sleight of hand verse, you never see it. But this is the one that sort of sets the tone for what comes next. God's saying, look, it's me. It's me that has freed you. And what's really interesting is that he moves from all this discussion about new life, about freedom from slavery and deliverance and so on, to then talk about boundaries and borders and restrictions and do's and don'ts and warnings. He moves from freedom to what many of us would consider or what many of us in, you know, in our lives or in our world would feel like is just more slavery, more restrictions, more things that we just can't do. And so he moves from, I've freed you, and it feels like he moves right back into some sort of slavery, a slave to these commands, a slave to these ways of life. And again, when you and I think about the 10, we just never think of that verse. We just think of how we're doing against the list. But this verse serves a purpose, and God does this all through the Scriptures, and uh, the writers of the Scriptures did this quite a bit. Just a couple of examples. Paul said it this way, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... That's the, sort of the precursor for what he's going to say. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Chapters 1 through 11 is all theology. It's, all, it's hard to read. It's all of this. This is what God has done through Jesus, and it's 11 chapters, and then Paul puts the pen down and picks up a new one and says, therefore, because of everything I just talked about, which chapters 1 through 11 is about the mercy of God, change your way of living. 
There's a new set of rules. So Paul does it. Jesus, uh, next verse. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And this is right before he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and tell the story of me to the world. Just before he says that, though, he makes this statement, just so you don't forget who I am, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I call those the therefore statements. It's when God says, okay, because of all of this in your past and because of what I've done for you through my mercy and grace, now this. And this is usually a reminder of how to live, right? And all through the scriptures, God reminds us of how to live our lives, not only because of his will for us, like he has this idea of how we should be living, but because our lives, they do communicate to the world who God is. Our lives are telling a story about who God is. I've said that before from this stage. And so what follows this little riff about freedom, about being freed from slavery, about a new life, what follows that list is another list, or what, that verse is a list about living in a way that communicates to the world who God is. What God was saying to the people of Israel at that moment was, this is how you will now live as free people. Because remember that they've been slaves. That's the only reality they knew. And so as a slave, you don't even have the freedom to think. You don't even have the freedom to imagine. You don't even have the freedom to dream. You don't even have the freedom to obey or not to obey. You just obey. But God now gives these people the freedom to choose which kind of life they will live. So the, the law, the ten, is actually this incredible act of grace. You now have the choice of living this kind of life. And I, I want to address the, the issue of irrelevancy, because I know that some of you are going, this is completely irrelevant. It's so Moses. That's so Moses. We're Jesus. Every, every one of the ten is reiterated in the teachings of Jesus or in the apostles' writings, all of them. And they're all the base of how we are to live for God. It's not so Moses. I mean, think about it spiritually. The first four are spiritual in nature. Think about what it would be like to not, as a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, to not live by the first four. I mean, the first commandment is to put God first. If that's not how you live as a follower of Christ, it often leads to the second commandment, which is do not make anything an idol. And you're thinking, I don't own a statue that speaks in the dark. It's not that kind of idol. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. And that's a long series, by the way, so buckle in. And if I have trouble with that, then I will certainly misuse the name of God. We often think, don't take the Lord's name in vain. The third commandment is like this, don't cuss. But it's actually deeper than that. It's actually, I don't even know how to carry the name of God because I don't know who it is. I'm, I'm struggling with understanding who God is is. And so I'll misuse it every time. We were in Louisville this past week. My wife's from there, and we were up there uh, for Christmas, and uh, there's a, uh, there was a Christian coffee shop. I love those places. They never last. Uh, this was the name. Are you ready? Jehovah Java. <laughs> Just just take the Lord's name in vain. Just attach it to coffee and just sell it up, and there you go. Jehovah Java. <laughs> if that's your chain, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> but think about that. Think about Sabbath. If I don't rest, I'll burn out. Not just at work and in family, but I'll burn out on religion. And we'll talk about that this year. That religion can actually become your idol. And it can fail you. And God inserts this discipline for his people to stop and to remember the first commandment and to remember verse 2, that he's the one who's brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's just the spiritual part of the ten. The rest seem very social, but just imagine a world that did not live by those. It's completely relevant. If the world didn't live by those, then people would be dead. There would be lives lost. There would be marriages that are torn apart because people were just sleeping with other people's spouses. Parents would not have the respect of their children and vice versa. There would be all sorts of things stolen. Nobody likes that. People would gossip continually because that never happens, but people would gossip continually about others and it would tear you apart. You would be dismantled, but you would never know it. Or this whole coveting thing where people look at your life and they say, i got to have that. i got to have that. And that leads to all sorts of stuff. I hope that's a good case for these are relevant. If you're a follower of Christ, they're super relevant. If you're just on the outside looking in going, I can't believe he's talking about this, it's relevant. It's happening. And so God gives them these words to remind them that there is a way to live. And if you're going to trust me and follow me, and if you're going to live as free people, keep these in mind. But here's the big thing. There's also a sense in which God is reminding them of what he does in our lives. He's saying to them and to us that he will continue to set us free. Because if you give people rules, if you give people guidelines, you know they're going to break them. People aren't perfect. And so God is kind of saying, I'm not about to give you a list of stuff you need to live by before I let you know that I'm the God who brings you out of slavery. I'm the God who will never forget to rescue you when you drop the ball. Some people have said, some theologians, and it's very wise that the law is almost there to remind us of the grace of God. That because of the law, we really learn about the grace of God. If it's a wide open system, nobody understands grace. But if it's a almost a restricted system of life. This is how we live. This is how we interact with family. This is how we do life on this planet. And we break those and we experience the grace of God. And some of you know what I'm saying when I say this, and maybe I'm just speaking for me, but I never understand the grace of God more than when I'm coming out of sin. Is it true? When I'm coming out of a struggle or when I'm just coming out of a season of just doubt or whatever, the grace of God feels and is more real at that moment. But the biggest thing is this. When there is freedom, there is also the risk of more slavery. When I'm free to think, and you've got to think about these Israelites experiencing freedom for the first time, but think about your own life too, but when we're free to think, when we're free to move, act, purchase, own, collect, lead, work, whatever, when I'm free to do all those things on my own terms and at my own will, I've got to remember that there's a real risk beneath the surface of all that freedom that I might become a slave again to all those things. That all of those things I'm free to do may control me if I'm not careful. And we all know the stories, right? Someone just got too involved in this and it became their master. Whether it's their popularity, their looks, their reputation, their stuff. We all have that risk. If we're free to do what we want to do, then there's also the risk of becoming a slave 
to those things. And if you follow the story of the Israelites, you will see this repeated, this story repeated over and over and over again. Free slaves, free slaves. And sometimes they actually enslave people. And they just seem to never learn. So I wanted to start the year off reminding us of this one big truth, and it's in verse 2, and just look at it again. That God is the one who saves. That God is still the one who brings people out of Egypt. That God is still the one who brings us out of slavery. And our Egypt, by the way, we're sort of living in a time and a place where we don't have this physical, empirical struggle of slavery in our own world. But everybody struggles with breaking the ways of God. Everybody struggles with sin. Paul says it this way in Romans on the screen. But thanks be to God, Paul says, though you used to be, what's the word? Slaves to sin. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free. There's the phrase. You've been set free from that, from sin, and become slaves to righteousness. It's a new kind of slavery. You want to be slaves to the ways of God, to His righteousness, a whole new way of living. At the end of the year, uh, last year, bring up that first picture, Reagan. Do you guys remember this? We did these cards, and we taped them to the stage, and it grew uh, each week, and we asked you to just write two words on there. It was your then and your now, and it was over the last 12 months. Tell us how God has transformed your life or whatever He's been doing over the last 12 months. And we started to build these on the stage, and over that four or five week period, the stage began to just tell this story of freedom from sin and slavery. I mean, you can just read some of them where it just says, a taking to giving. I mean, that's just a great story, is it not? That's a great story. And you can just, and what we noticed was during communion, it took longer, that series, because we know that many of you were just reading them as you came up. Next slide. I love this one. Searching and patient. It's not like they're there. It's not an end of the journey kind of thing. It's just like this slow steps. But the, but the next one wrote the sermon today. Isn't that amazing? And I don't even know how to do Photoshop, so that's real, all right? But from bondage to freedom. That's the story that's happening, not somewhere else, but in this room and in the first service and in the, the connect groups that are meeting in homes. That's the story that's unfolding in this place. Now, we took all those cards and we hung them on the back of that door and around the door jam, which is our office slash backstage area. So that when we leave our office every day and every Sunday when we come out from prayer back there, we're reminded face on that God still frees people. And we don't forget that. And we don't forget why we sing. We don't forget why we pray. We don't forget why we teach. He still frees us from slavery. He's still doing it. If you will, turn to John chapter 4. There's so many stories. I mean, how do you pick one? You could just throw a stone into the scriptures and hit one, but this is such a great story, and you, you may be connected to it. You may not be, but it's the story of Jesus speaking to this woman at the well. Uh, the woman's story is pretty simple. She's had five husbands, and the guy she's with now is not her husband. That's her backstory. She's coming to get water at the well, probably alone because her reputation is sunk. Jesus is sitting there when she arrives, and he begins to talk to her, which breaks all sorts of cultural issues of that day, but we won't get into that. She's come for water. Now, Jesus is going to radically shift 
her life. Now, what Jesus knows about her is what she knows but won't admit, and that's that all these little, all these little relationships that she's been in, it's not working. At least the first five haven't. So she's putting hope in the sixth, but it won't work. It'll be the sixth, then it'll be the seventh, and the eighth, and the ninth. And Jesus knows this because he knows this about us. If we move something in place of God, it always falls over. And so Jesus is sitting there with this woman, and they're having a conversation, and they get theological, and they start talking about uh, worship and so on and history. But then he basically reads her mail in front of her and says, I know you're not married because you had five husbands and the guy you're with is not your husband and she says oh well she doesn't say that but I'm sure it that resounded in her head but look at verse 28 she says or then leaving her jar of water the woman went back to the town and said to the people come see a man who told me everything I ever did could this be the Christ, which they had that discussion together? Could this be the Christ? And then Jesus and his disciples speak for a moment. And then in verse 39, many Samaritans believed from that town. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's what? Her story, her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. I'm sure there's more to the story. I'm sure we're missing some of the story, but certainly she's unfolding this shift from slavery to freedom. She's enslaved to relationships, and it's not working. And Jesus says, look, it's, it's okay. The whole thing's just out of whack. You've got to come back here and remember who God is, and let's get things in order. It's not a perfect system. You're going to fall again, but let's just get things straight from the start. And so everyone believed. People believed because of this woman's story of change. I mean, if she had to write on a card and stick it on our stage, it would, it would say that. It would say from bondage to freedom. It would say from the need for men to, I don't need any men, right? And Paul says it this way, and I promised I wouldn't do this verse this year, but come on, really. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And the old is gone, and the new has come. So welcome to a new year. Welcome to a place where God continues to bring people out of slavery and into freedom. Welcome to a place where the message of grace always comes first, but also a place where you and I are challenged to respond to that grace by giving the way of our lives over to the way of Jesus. Welcome to a place where the stories of freedom from the slavery of sin are unfolding every single day. Join the story. Just get in that story. That's my prayer for this year. We came through such an amazing year last year as a community. And when we were looking ahead, it just gets better. And we are just anticipating, not as people who see the future, but just we feel like this is a rhythm for us, that these stories will continue to build and develop, and people will be, uh, we ended the year last week, write down on a card where you want to be next year spiritually, and we took them, and we're making labels, and you'll get those in the mail at the end of this year, and you can look back and just be like, wow, so join that story, and uh, we pray deeply uh, that what we do over the next 
51 Sundays uh, will just be an amazing journey. Let's pray together, and then we're going to move into communion and offering and sing one more song uh, together. Father, we do thank you so much for uh, this truth that you bring us from captivity, from slavery, just all those words that describe uh, just sin and misdirection and confusion. And you bring us out of that and you put us into these places where uh, we trust you again, where we, um, we have, our faith is built maybe just a little bit higher. But God, we thank you for what we know is grace. We don't fully know what that means because we don't operate that way, but when we fail, God, you are always there to pick us up. Like the prodigal returns to his father, you're always there. You run to meet us, in fact. And so when we journey through these things, these words of do this and do that, and there's some don'ts in there too, that we will see what you're really trying to do and that we will just fall in love with your ways and that we will fall in love with living that kind of life. Not just in here when we sing, but when we go home and go to work and out in our city. God, help us to be a church that communicates that message, even if we never say it, that this is a place where freedom can be found. And we just pray for the next, uh, the next 12 months that you do some amazing things, not only in this church, but in every church up and down this street and around the city, that your people shine like never before. And we love you and we thank you for the freedom that you've brought through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose precious name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.